0: You are listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen. It's so good to be with you today. Again, uh, so glad to continue our sermon series through the Gospel of John, and so I would invite you to go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 4 as we look at verses 1 through 30 today. Again, that is John 4, verses 1 through 30, and we're going to look at a sermon that is entitled, A Shocking Conversation. In 2007, a, a father and son went out for a walk in their field in North Yorkshire in England, And uh, it was just a Saturday afternoon stroll. The son had recently bought a metal detector, and he thought that he would see if he could find any treasure. Sure enough, as they began walking along, the metal detector started to ping. They excitedly began digging, and they dug about a foot down, and then they began to wonder if there was actually anything there. When suddenly, a little ball of clay rolled aside, and there was a coin. A coin. The metal detector kept pinging, and so they continued to dig and dig, and finally, about a foot and a half down, they uncovered what they believed to be a bowl. It looked a lot like a bowl with a lid on it or a small pot. So they took a pot home, and then about a month later, they showed it to an expert who determined that the pot was pure silver, lined with gold, and over a thousand years old. Inside the pot were 600 silver coins. And the little pot became known as one of the largest Viking treasure stashes ever recorded. Sometimes, ordinary walks in a field on a Saturday afternoon turn into uncovering buried treasure. The father said that uh, to that point, he had had the metal detector a little while, and the only thing they had ever found was buttons. He said, if we had just found one coin, we would have been over the moon. But this was marvelous and shocking. Today we will see a story that is equally shocking. It's a normal person going about a mundane task and yet finding treasure beyond her greatest dreams. It is a providential encounter and a shocking conversation. So let us look now at John 4 verses 1 through 30. Verse 1 it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father God, again, we come before you, and Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Father we thank you that in your word you reveal to us everything that we need. Lord you reveal to us specifically what we need in order to live a life that is pleasing to you and in order to know what we need to know for salvation Lord in order to uh, understand what you have given us. But Father we pray today that by looking into this word that you would reveal more of yourself. Father that we might worship you more fully. Father we pray that you would encourage us and uplift us by your grace. Father, we pray that you would convict us with your holiness. Father, we pray that you would equip us with your truth. That we might be people who would be fruitful and faithful and have an impact on this community and the world. Father, we pray that now in this place that you would speak. Father, you would move me out of the way. Lord, proclaim your message to your people. Father, move in our midst now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the last few weeks we have uh, been working through the Gospel of John, and now it's, it's been some time that we've been doing this, but uh, we've seen specifically that Jesus and the Pharisees have had a couple of encounters at this point, as has John the Baptist. And the last time we were together, really, we, we've seen that Jesus has really used conversations throughout this gospel to deliver some of his deepest teachings, right? His, initially, the conversation with John the Baptist is where we spent some time. And then uh, last week, we saw, or, or sorry, a few weeks ago, we saw that Nicodemus and Jesus were having this deep conversation in which teaching took place. And, and then we, we had a side note where we looked at John the Baptist and, and his uh, concept of increasing and decreasing, But now we turn again to another conversation. At this point, Jesus is being pursued by the Pharisees. Um, He knows that if they know what he's doing, they're going to come in and they're going to make trouble, and since it is not yet the appointed time for such things, um, he moves on and we see this shocking conversation that happens today. Now, to you, this may not seem like that odd of a conversation. It might not seem shocking or striking as, as I am describing it, but... Uh, there are several things that make it a very shocking conversation. First of all, just to kind of set the stage for you this morning, I want to I talk about what makes it so shocking. First of all, in order to understand this passage, we need to know about the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it can be summed up in one word, hatred. The Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. It was a passionate, uh, just really severe dislike. In fact, the Jews hated the Samaritans so much that they would cross the Jordan River twice instead of going to Samaria if they had to go in that direction. And so when we think about that to us, that seems like not a big deal because we might cross the Cusa several times and are uh, coming and going from East Gadsden in a day. But back then, the idea of crossing the Jordan River was a, a, it was a job, it was work, it was severe discomfort. And yet they hated a whole people so much that they went completely out of their way to avoid them. And yet we see here today that Jesus traveling from Judea to Galilee, the number one route where they would have done this custom, Jesus doesn't follow that tradition. Instead, Jesus, when he heard that the Pharisees knew he was popular, he decides to move on from Judea and go back to Galilee, and he travels right through Samaria. They come to a town called Sychar, which features Jacob's well. It's about noon. It's the heat of the day. Jesus has been on this journey. It's a a long, rough journey. It says he's wearied, and so we get a glimpse here of Jesus' humanity. He's struggling from the heat, and so he rests at the well. Now, a woman comes to draw water, and this is the beginning of the conversation. But again, another element of this conversation that is pretty surprising is the fact that this woman comes alone at noon to draw water historically and normally the custom of the day would have been that the women would come in groups early in the morning in the cool of the day to draw water together that way they could take turns it was was serious work even to this day we see that in in cultures and places around the world um, this is something that is still happening every day and in all of these situations it's pretty much the same thing they all go together in a group in the morning sometimes in the evening when it's cool This woman comes in the middle of the day, and she comes alone. It seems obvious from this understanding that this woman was an outcast. It seems that she had different interests and priorities. For whatever reason, she was not there with the group of women. She didn't come in the cool of the day. She was either running severely behind, or she didn't have a group to go with. And it is shocking that Jesus is speaking with this woman. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan, and he's speaking with her alone. Now the disciples later, when they come back, they will marvel at this fact. Right? It says, quite honestly, they're, they're marveling, and, and I love the way that the, the gospel describes it because it says that in their minds they're wondering why would he waste time with this Samaritan woman, but ultimately they keep their thoughts to themselves because they realize that Jesus is up to something. But in that moment, they're marveling, they're questioning, why in the world would he have this conversation? Because they are Jews who are were, who were deeply embedded in this hatred. And we see that throughout this conversation, what happens is that Jesus begins to turn this woman's thoughts and expectations on their head. She thinks one thing, and Jesus will shift her thinking entirely. And it happens in three distinct ways as he shares the gospel with this woman that the Jews hated. First of all, this morning, I want you to see that Jesus offers her different water. We see this in verses 7 through 18. Jesus offers this woman different water. Why is she there? She has come to draw water, to, to dip a bucket into a well, to carry water back to her home that she would use for living, for operating, for those sorts of things. And in this moment, as she's there, Jesus is resting along the well He asks her for a drink. The disciples are gone. They're in town buying food, and he's sitting there on this well, and he says, give me a drink. Deeply embedded in this moment, again, we see this frustration. The woman says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, to us, we, we see this, this conversation here where it says we have no dealings, and, and we, we think that this is kind of like, oh, they avoid one another. But again, just to kind of help us understand here, the rabbis of the Jewish culture had made a rule that said that Jews and Samaritans could not share utensils, they weren't allowed to brush up against one, of, one another, they were to have nothing in common. And they were to especially, under no circumstances, drink from the same bucket. And it is in this moment that Jesus has asked this woman, knowing full good and well who she is and what she is, for a drink. And Jesus answers her and he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman came that morning simply for water. And yet now she is having a conversation with the Savior. Jesus says here again if you only knew the gift of God. I believe here specifically, he is speaking the concepts again of faith and grace. The gift of God. And he says if you knew who it was who's speaking to you, the Son of God, he would give you living water. Not just the simple water that you can pull from this well, but water that represents from our understanding salvation and eternal life. Her thought process is simply on providing enough water for her and whoever lives in her household. It's normal water. And even when he says this here, this this living water, it can sometimes mean flowing water, she again is still thinking of normal water. She says, you have nothing to draw the water with. The well's deep. Where are you going to get it? Are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well? Again, she is thinking of something that is worldly, that is physical. But Jesus is meaning something that is satisfying, something that has and and means and signifies eternal life. Now, her question there, again, where are you going to get this, leads to a statement that Jesus makes very clearly where he says... Whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. Now, we can think about this very simply in our own worldly terms for a minute. I mean, when we're hot, when we're working outside, and as the temperature gets hotter and hotter, um, and it will continue to do so right now, it's pleasant. But soon enough, we know that it'll be 110, and humidity will just be oppressive and when we're outside doing things and we're, we're sweating and it's hot, a cool glass of water is refreshing. But no matter how refreshing it may be, it still doesn't satisfy. It still has to be drunk again. D.L. Moody would, would talk about this concept uh, in a sermon that he preached one time. And he said uh, that during one of the great battles in the Civil War, he was ministering to some of the people who were wounded. And he said, they were coming down the Tennessee River with a company of wounded men and it was in the spring of the year and the water was not clear. He says, you know the cry of a wounded man is water, water, especially in hot country. He said that he remembered taking a glass of the muddy water from the Tennessee River to one of the men and uh, the man was so thirsty but he only drank a little bit of it. He handed the glass back and as he did so he said, oh, for a drink of water from my father's well. He was longing for, for earthly water even that was better. But D.L. Moody used that and he connected it and he says, are, are you thirsty? We don't need to settle for muddy, nasty, earthly water when we can have the cool, clean, eternal life and living water that comes from our, our Father. He said that your longing would be satisfied. You'll never thirst again. And as Jesus is talking about this idea, the woman says, Give me this water because I don't want to work anymore. Right? She's again still thinking in terms of, of the worldly perspective. I would love to not have to come to this well and draw water. She's still thinking in terms of the worldly. And Jesus says to her, call your husband. Now in this moment, we're kind of tempted to wonder what this has to do with the story, right? Right? It seems a a little bit random, but again, she is only focusing on the worldly, on the here and now, and on not having to draw more water. But Jesus is going to show her that her concern, just as ours is, is much deeper than that. He tells her to call her husband, and what does she say? I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right. You've had five of them, and the one who you're living with now is not your husband at all. What you've said is true. What this shows us in, in light of this story is, is something that is a very symptomatic and, and allows us to diagnose a little bit of this woman's problems. She is, has a heart problem. She was seeking something that the world and relationships and things could never fill. Her, her serial relationships that had, had fallen apart and fallen through seemed to show us that she was seeking to satisfy her soul and her longing with the stuff of the world. She's seeking satisfaction in earthly things, and Jesus is telling her that she needs to instead seek satisfaction in the only thing that can save, in living water, in eternal life that comes as a result of His grace. And we would do well to recognize that in our own life. We may not have had five husbands, but we may have gone through a string of other bad decisions. We may have gone through countless other things. We may have seek to fill our heart or sought to fill our heart with various and sundry problems or vices or things of this world that we think are going to fill us, but they won't. The only thing that will satisfy is the living water that comes from Jesus. He describes it. He says it wells up to eternal life. The gift of Christ's grace and salvation, it cannot be understated. It is an amazing work. And by God's grace, we have the opportunity to experience eternity with Him. Don't settle for earthly water. Her concern was simply on what was happening right there and in the moment, and we do need to be concerned about what's happening right now and in the moment and in this world. But we should also be focused on the eternal aspects. We should also be focused on what God is calling us to and what he is here in this moment, what he was offering to her was something far greater. May we not be like the Samaritan woman, only focused on right now and seeking to satisfy our soul with something that can never do it. Secondly, this morning, I want you to see that Jesus called her to a different worship. We see this in verses 19 through 26. Now, again, she has not mentioned anything about her husband or lack thereof. Probably is not the kind of thing she was going to bring up in her first conversation with a random man at the well. But... Jesus, at this point, has been very clearly speaking about her life. He has insight. Again, he is truly God, and so he has this knowledge of who she is. Remember, he has said he knows what is in man to this point already. And so she obviously recognizes that something is going on, and she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She still wasn't quite there. I mean, she obviously recognizes that Jesus is someone, right? He has some ability to understand her situation. So she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. Again, that is not enough. There are so many people who are lost, so many religious systems that are lost, who all would agree Jesus was a prophet. Jesus is calling her to something deeper than just that. A true saving knowledge of him requires more than an acknowledgement that he was a smart guy or a prophet, but that he was truly God and truly man. And so, since she recognizes that he is a spiritual person, she tries to strike up a spiritual conversation. She said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, This moment here is kind of uh, interesting for us because we will recognize that that she is saying that he has said something, right? But you say that in Jerusalem. She's not talking about Jesus specifically. She's talking about the Jews. She says the Jews worship in Jerusalem, and, and we worship here on this mountain. The mountain she was referring to is Mount Gerizim, and on that mountain the Samaritans had built their own temple because they disagreed with the Jews on so many things. They had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, And so what we see here is two distinct and different forms of worship. She's still thinking about what she knows. And what he tells her is, he says, listen, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. What Jesus is telling her is he says, Our is coming and is now here when temple worship will pass. You won't worship on the mountain or in Jerusalem. You will worship in spirit and in truth. But in the process of this statement, he makes again this clear statement. There he tells her that you worship what you do not know. The biggest religious difference between the Samaritans and the Jews was the fact that the Samaritans blended all sorts of pagan and false religions into their practice and belief in God. It was pagan. It was false. It was syncretistic. Jesus is telling her, he says, salvation is from the Jews. The Messiah is coming from the Jews. You need to stop worrying about all this stuff with the temple. And you need to stop this syncretistic worship. And you need to worship God in spirit and in truth. That word syncretism, it means worshiping multiple things together at once. Jesus told her, he says, this has to stop. And we're quick to to reject the idea of syncretism, right? Most of us would say, there is no way we can worship other things alongside Christ. We can't worship false gods alongside the true and living God, and yet we see it happen in so many ways. We must either rely completely and entirely on the worship of Jesus Christ, or we have rejected him. We cannot be united to Christ and also put our hopes in the things of the world or the devil. And the sad part of this is that it looks very familiar. There are tons of ways that this shows up, and Christians take the bait hook, line, and sinker. It is incorporating other religious ideas into our life. How many times do we encounter Christians who speak of things like manifesting, or auras, or zen, or mantras, or witchcraft, or new age, fortune telling, horoscopes, etc.? These are just a few examples. But they are blended in alongside our worship of God, and it is syncretism, and it is pagan, and it is false. Don't fall for it. This is what Jesus was telling this woman. Don't take all these things that have been blended into your form of worship, because it's false. Worship God in spirit and truth by the grace of Jesus Christ. This week, John MacArthur said something that I believe was very appropriate to this. He says, you can't dine at the table with demons and drink from the cup of the Lord. It cannot be both. We cannot serve and worship Christ and also put any stake in these false ideologies and religious practices. Jesus is telling her, look, it is not about the the place, the physical place that you worship. That's that's great. You have a temple on a mountain. Wonderful. Wonderful. He says, the Jews, they have a temple in Jerusalem. Wonderful. It's not about that. What it's about is about worshiping him in truth and worshiping him spiritually as well. We are to follow him completely by his word and by his grace. And as Jesus makes this claim to the woman, her response reveals that she is uninterested in that. What does she say? She says, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Essentially, what the woman is saying here is that the Messiah will come, and I know he's coming, and when he comes, he'll, he'll tell us. Basically, she's saying, well, you can say that, but the Messiah will, will settle this. Until then, we can't know who is right or wrong, and what happens is that she is avoiding the truth because it's inconvenient. This is the equivalent of a shoulder shrug. I don't know. She's not interested in what he's telling her because she's not interested in giving up those pagan practices. They were comfortable, they were convenient. And this is often the answer that we too give when we are confronted. Well, I guess we'll find out. But we have a responsibility. To seek the truth and to know the truth to the best of our ability. And Jesus here is specifically when we are confronted with our sin. And our need to change and to worship God truly. We can't say, well, we can't know, so I'm just going to keep on keeping on. But when the word confronts us with the truth of our sin and, and the falseness of these practices, we must deny what is false and embrace what is true. We must worship him in spirit And in truth. But notice the logic of Jesus' argument. It wasn't what convinced her. She dodged the conviction of the truth by saying, well, the Messiah will tell us. We'll find out. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is explicitly claiming, I am the Messiah. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Jesus never made claims to be God. We see it right here. And essentially, in the Greek, the phrase is even stronger because it's rendered the one who is speaking to you is I am. This is a deity statement. It says, no more temple worship, no more dodging the question, no more any of this false stuff. I'm here and I'm telling you, worship God in spirit and in truth. It says, God is seeking such people. The Greek word there for seek, it has another meaning as well. That's the idea of demanding. God demands such worship. When we realize that we have a holy and mighty and powerful God and there is none like him, we recognize that it is a demand that we too be holy. Scripture countless times will tell us to be holy for he is holy. The Bible tells us that he is God and there is no other. God is not interested in splitting time with any other religion or ideology or thing. God does not want you every other weekend. God demands that we worship him in spirit and in truth, and that is only possible by coming to Christ by his grace. It's worshiping him, again, by the grace of Christ, putting our hope and faith and trust in the cross of Christ and in his blood, allowing the spirit to work in us that we might be different. So far, we've seen that Jesus has offered different water. He's called her to different worship. But finally, and thirdly today, he leaves her a different woman. Verse 27, This is that just then, his disciples came back. They came back right at that moment. He makes the deity claim, and there the disciples are. And they're marveling that he's talking with a woman. But everyone kept it to themselves. And we see in verse 28, it says, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, again, it doesn't, she never responds to that statement vocally and verbally with Jesus, but she responds in action. Upon the understanding that Jesus is God and that he is the Messiah and he's given her a command, notice that what is the first thing it says about her. She left her jar and went away into town. The idea that she left her water jar is symbolic of leaving her worldly concerns. The thing that she came there for, the only reason she was there in the first place was to draw water. And that would have been very important for her physical well-being It would have been very important for for her household and for all the things that she had to do. But she left that water jar behind. Upon understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, her worldly concerns shrunk. And it became instead a time of rejoicing and of telling. Far too often we live a spiritual life. We have an understanding of who Jesus is as the Messiah, but we never let go of our worldly concerns. I'm not saying, again, that we should have no concern for the things of this world or or the things that are going on. We should definitely be concerned about things, especially those that have consequences. But confronted with the truth of Jesus, we're called to be different, to be in the world but not of it. To be renewed, transformed, to be people who who's no longer our first priority is the here and now and the physical and, and what makes us happy and what makes it easiest, but instead to leave behind our concerns. But also to leave behind our burdens. The work of a, a woman carrying water is really an amazing thing. Um, I recently heard a, a presentation on this uh, in a seminar I was in, and they were talking about the work that these women would go through to uh, carry water. I mean, we require several gallons a day just to be able to function, basically. This was her work. This was the thing that she would have done. This was a task, and and it's a weight that she would have carried on her shoulders—physical weight. We recognize that there's also a spiritual weight that is lifted as well. When we are following Christ, when we're confronted with the grace and the majesty of who he is, and the fact that he loves us, again, not only do our worldly concerns get left behind, but so do our burdens when we trust in him. Again, we see that she's different in that instead of being alone and isolated, where is she? She's amongst people in the town. She was not content to remain isolated any longer, but she runs into the town and she says, come and see a man who told me all I ever did. She went to rejoice and to tell, just as we must when we are confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, go and tell others. She uses a a come and see method. Right, She says, come see him for yourself. Come see him who told me all I ever did. She admits it. Right? I mean, after that whole husband conversation, she never really admitted it. He just said, you've spoken truly. And then, but now we see she's saying, basically, I did all of that. He told me all I ever did. And yet he's still, knowing that, had a conversation with her. And because of the joy that she recognizes from that and the fact that he's the Messiah, she goes and tells. Friends, if we know the truth of Christ, if we have experienced the, the release of our burden and worldly concerns, we should quickly go and tell. This last kind of question we're left with here from her is, can this be the Christ? Um, I didn't realize, I guess, when I was writing this was going to be a treasure hunting theme today, but uh, here we are. Uh, I used to watch that TV show, The, the Curse of Oak Island. And um, it seemed like they're always trying to find some piece of treasure on this island. And every time they're like, can it be? And then it's like, no, it's not. Right? They're looking. Can it be? No. With her, though, it, that's not the, the mentality that's taken here. Right? We read this as a question that almost seems to be kind of pessimistic. Can this be the Christ? Well, I don't really know. When in reality, it's, it's more like, can it be? This is the Messiah. Her statement is one that is obviously powerful because it says that the people went out of the town and were coming to him. In verse 39, which we'll cover next week, it says that many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of what? Her testimony. Our goal, I believe, as a church is first and foremost to glorify God. But secondly, I believe we would love it if verse 30 could happen right here. If they went out of the town and were coming to him. Right, That, that is a prayer. Of mine. And I hope it's a prayer of yours, that this would be our town. But it happened because a woman had an encounter with Christ, left a different person, and went and told everyone. May we too go into the towns, the highways and byways, and the nations and tell people, come and see Christ, who told me all I ever did, loved me anyway. Friends, if you have not encountered Christ, recognize that he is the Messiah. He lived a sinless life, was born of a virgin, and died on the cross to bear the punishment of our sins. When we put our hope and faith and trust in him by his grace, he saves us. if we are believers today, we have a responsibility to go and tell and to leave our worldly concerns and anything that is not of Christ behind. May we rise to that challenge today. Father, we come before you and Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for this story in, in which we see a woman who incredibly is tied up in many sins. And yet, Lord, we know that you love her that you changed her. Father, today, if there is someone here, if there are people here who are wrapped up and tied up in sin, and Lord, they are carrying a weight, we pray that you would have an encounter with them now. That Lord, you would show them that you love them anyway. That Father, you would have your will to be done in this place. They might come and know you. Lord, for the believers, we pray that you would inspire and encourage your church to live knowledgefully and mindfully of the fact that you are God. There is no other. And that the sharing of your message is mission number one. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.